Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of potential that was never fulfilled. Our subject is James Fly Williams. He is one of the greatest streetball players of all time. In fact, the Streetball Association, or SBA, once named Fly Williams the second greatest streetball player of all time, after Earl the Goat Man. I would not argue with that assessment. Fly Williams had Iverson-level talent, but in a six-foot-five body. I tried to figure out why he was nicknamed Fly. Some stories say that he was because he let the ball fly from virtually anywhere on the court. Some said it was because of his stylish game. Or, to put it another way, his game was Fly. However, he got his nickname. He was an incredibly talented player and should be in the Hall of Fame. But bad decisions, combined with some bad luck, derailed his career pretty much from the beginning. He was born on February 18, 1953 in Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. Brownsville was one of the poorest neighborhoods in all of New York City. When Fly was growing up, nearly half of the residents of Brownsville lived below the poverty line. There was a lot of gangs, drugs, violence, broken families, and basketball. Foster Park was where you would go to find the court. If you wanted to get in a good run against some good talent, then Foster Park is where you went. Guys like World Be Free and Albert King grew up at that park. So did Hall of Famer Bernard King. No disrespect to Rucker Park because the Rucker has some of the best street ball in the entire city. But Foster Park, at least back in the 1960s and 1970s, also had some of the best basketball around. Fly Williams grew up without a father in the home. His mother, Annie Ruth Williams, had moved to New York City from South Carolina. She had four or five kids, but Fly was the baby. Most of his siblings were quite a bit older and had moved out as he was growing up. He had a natural ability with the basketball, and they say that he once scored 100 points in the middle school game. It was clear to everyone that he was one of the most talented players on the street ball circuit. Even as young as 13 or 14 years old, he was playing against grown men and keeping up. By the time he got to be 15 and 16, he was dominating the grown men who came out for a piece of the fly. It was obvious to the entire neighborhood that Fly was destined for the riches of the NBA. A couple of other players from the neighborhood had made it to the NBA, so why not Fly? He started high school at James Madison High School in Brooklyn. As far as basketball went, he was absolutely dominant. He could leap like few others could. He had Michael Jordan or Vince Carter type leaping ability. They said that when Fly went up for a rebound, his elbows would be even with the rim as he would snatch balls out of the air. However, he was not what you would call a model student. School was just not his thing. Basically, he was flunking out of high school. Without a high school team to play for, his chances at a college scholarship would all but evaporate. 
Now, enter a man by the name of Rodney Parker. Parker was a guy in his early 30s who was probably the most well-connected guy in all of Brooklyn. He knew all of the best streetball players from every park across the city. He made his money by scalping tickets to sporting events like the Yankees, Mets, Knicks, Giants, and Rangers. He had a real knack for getting his hands on a stack of tickets at a good price and then reselling them in front of the stadium or arena for a profit. Now, that type of profession did not require a ton of his time. That was mostly evening work so he was completely free in the daytime. That meant that he had time to scout various playground courts around the city to get to know all of the best players. He would even arrange games between players from different parks. For example, he might organize a team of the best players from Foster Park and then arrange for a team of the best players from the Rucker Park and set up a game between them. It was almost like a little streetball league with all of the various parks in the city forming their own teams of their best players. And Rodney Parker was the man behind all of this. He would also be very generous with talented youngsters. It seems that he was feeding half the neighborhood. Now, I will give him credit. He was very generous with meals for the kids, many of whom did not have enough food at home. In other words, Parker was making sure that the best teenage players around were all well-fed. They all loved Rodney Parker. He would sometimes even give them money for ice cream, burgers, or sodas. However, others wondered why he paid so much attention to the talented youngsters. What was in it for Rodney Parker? In Rick Tellender's book, Heaven is a Playground, even he could not figure it out, and he spent an entire summer with Parker for that book. Parker never formally asked anything in return from any of the kids that he was helping. He would even give them shoes to play if the kids' parents could not afford any. And he knew everybody. He was even in contact with private high schools throughout the northeastern part of the United States, and he knew nearly every college coach at Division I. Anytime that high schools or colleges were looking for some undiscovered talent, they only needed to place a call to Rodney Parker. He was the middleman between the player and the school. He became a de facto streetball agent for many of these players. But again, he never asked for any money, which was unusual. And this is what he did for Fly Williams. When Fly was flunking out of James Madison High School, it was part who arranged for Fly to play at a private school in upstate New York. Fly went to Glen Springs Academy in Watkins Glen, New York. It was a nice, safe town. There were no more gangs, drugs, or poverty. Fly lived with a family connected to the school, played basketball, and got his grades up. The school was more than happy to have him. I mean, practically any high school could use a guy who could score 30 points or more every single game. And it worked. Fly did get his grades up, finished his high school career, and was hoping for a scholarship. However, he was already getting into the street life of drugs, alcohol, and violence. Every time that he came home from Glen Springs Academy, he would find trouble, or trouble would find him. Either way, he was already making some bad decisions. Enter Rodney Parker again. In his unofficial role as the agent for all of these teenagers, he stepped in to try to keep Fly out of trouble, and I give the guy kudos for that. Everybody in the neighborhood wanted to see Fly make it to the NBA, Rodney Parker most of all. So in order to help keep Fly out of trouble, Parker got in contact with a young 24-year-old assistant coach by the name of Leonard Hamilton. Now you might know that name because he is the current head coach at Florida State University, but back in 1972, he was the assistant coach at Austin P State University, which is located about 30 minutes north of Nashville near the Kentucky border. At the time, Austin P had never been to the NCAA tournament, and they wanted a player who could really give them a shot in the arm and build their program. And Rodney Parker sold Coach Hamilton on the talents of Fly Williams. The school and head coach Lake Kelly wanted to have Fly come to the campus for a visit 
to sell him on their program and make sure that everything was a good fit. The school sent him some money to buy a plane ticket. And on the day of his arrival, the coach was at the airport in Nashville and Fly did not get off the plane. And they had no idea what happened. Now, there were no cell phones back then, so getting in touch with Fly was a challenge. So they tried to call Fly's mother and Rodney Parker back in New York. Well, they eventually found Fly in Austin, Texas. He thought that Austin P. University must be in Austin, Texas. So that is where he flew to. The coaches got a hold of Fly and told him to just sit tight and they would arrange for a new plane ticket to bring him from Austin to Nashville. And Fly refused. He told the coach to send him back to New York and then get him a ticket to Nashville from there. I guess when you want a certain player badly enough, then you buy him two extra plane tickets to get him to campus. Fly arrived the next day and he loved what he saw. Clarksville, Tennessee is a relatively small town. It is a far cry from Brooklyn. Around Clarksville, you will find a lot of farms. You can hardly go anywhere without seeing fields full of horses or cows. But Fly wanted to go there because he knew that he would be the star of the team. Now this is a good place to take a break and I'll be right back with the rest of the Fly Williams story. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports.
Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of Fly Williams. Just before the break, I shared that he decided to go to Austin P. State University, located in the small town of Clarksville, Tennessee, about 30 minutes north of Nashville. Now, Fly was the star of the team from the beginning. As a freshman, he averaged just a hair under 30 points per game. Now, this is big time at the college level. He was fifth in the nation in scoring, and the school started selling out all of their home games. Everybody wanted to see the show that was Fly Williams. Opposing schools would bring Fly fly swatters to the game and wave them around as a way of intimidating fly. I laughed when I found out this piece of information in my research. I thought it was pretty funny on the part of those students. Well, at the end of that season, the team qualified for the NCAA tournament the first time in school history, and they had Fly Williams to thank for that. In the first round, Fly scored 26 points in a victory over Jacksonville University. Then, in the second round, he scored 26 points again, but this time, it was in a loss to the much stronger University of Kentucky. As far as Austin P was concerned, this was still a huge success. It was the best season in school history. The team was on the rise. At the end of his freshman year, Fly returned to Brownsville for the summer and kept lighting things up on the street courts. He was unstoppable. He would often tell the crowd before the game started how many points he was going to score. And what I mean is, he would walk around the crowd telling everyone he was going to score 30 points or 40 points or even 50 points if he thought he could do it. It was not uncommon for Fly to reach his stated goal for points and then just walk off the court, literally. He would hit his 40th point of the game and literally just walk off the court, out of the park, and down the street with his hands up in some sort of a victory pose. As far as he was concerned, the show was over. He achieved his goal for the game and roll credits like it was the ending of a movie. However, there was another side of his behavior. Fly was likely to score 50 as he was to not show up at all. That happened many times where a huge crowd would show up because Fly said that he was going to play. But then, he never showed up. Like I said, he was already finding trouble in Brownsville. He was hanging out with someone who let Fly drive around in a new Mercury Cougar at no charge. Also, Fly suddenly had quite a bit of money in his pocket, even though he had no job. Things were beginning to unravel for Fly in terms of his basketball career. Now, just to be clear, Rodney Parker had nothing to do with the brand new car that Fly was driving around or the stacks of cash that were suddenly filling Fly's pockets. Rodney Parker tried to be the voice of reason in Fly's life. Parker knew full well how quickly the street life can consume a gifted player like Fly. Fly had legitimate NBA potential, but he was starting to follow a different path. What Fly was doing was that he was starting to listen to a local businessman by the name of Joe Jeffries L, who was cozying up to Fly because he wanted to be Fly's official agent when Fly went to the NBA. The agent of an NBA player typically receives between 7 and 10% of that NBA contract. So, speaking in terms of the amounts that were typical for the mid-1970s, if an NBA player signed for $100,000 per year, then the agent would get around 10000 per year as his share for negotiating the contract. That is what this businessman wanted. He wanted Fly to be his investment. So he gave Fly a car and money while Fly was still in college. Today, there would have been a huge investigation and suspensions and fines handed out. But back in the early 1970s, the NCAA did not have the resources to monitor this type of activity. They basically just trusted that all the universities in their system were doing the right thing. In other words, the NCAA operated on the honor system. 
With that, Fly returned to Austin P for his sophomore year, which was the 1973-74 season. He scored 28 points per game and continued to put on a show for the fans of Austin P and anyone else who came out to watch. He was a showman at heart. He played college basketball with the flair of a seasoned street ball player, which he was. The three-point line did not exist yet in college, but Fly would take deep jump shots from Steph Curry territory. He did so because it got the crowd on their feet. However, things were not all roses at Austin P. Fly was shooting the lights out with his high-flying dunks, deep jump shots, and he was jumping up for rebounds like he was on a pogo stick, but his teammates were not that happy. To put it simply, Fly was a ball hog. Assists were just not part of his repertoire. He figured that the team's best chances to score on any given possession was for him to have the ball in his hands. While the fans were excited, his teammates were fuming. All of his teammates were legitimate Division I basketball players and they found themselves having to support a player who was putting on a one-man show. He was also starting to become unreliable. He had a very short fuse and would often get into fights with his teammates in practice. He would get into fights with the refs and opposing players. If for any reason Fly found himself struggling in a game, his anger would start to go through the roof. He had a real issue handling adversity. He expected and demanded that everything come easy to him. And up until college, it always had. Once while at Austin P, he made a basket and immediately walked off the court to get a drink of water from the drinking fountain. The game had not stopped. His teammates had to play defense one player down because Fly was thirsty and needed to get some water at that moment. Yet despite all of this, he still led them back to the NCAA tournament. In the first round of the 1974 tournament, he scored 26 points in a loss to Notre Dame, and they lost 108-66. to and that ended his second year as a college player. Again, he went back to Brownsville for the summer and the people with influence in his life had convinced him that he should leave school and go to the NBA. This was his chance to get out of poverty and change his life and his family's life forever. Or so he thought. Unfortunately, he did not handle things very well. He had made some bad decisions and painted himself into a corner. And I'll share the rest of that story next week in part two of our profile, on James Fly Williams. He did play basketball professionally, but Fly had a way of throwing roadblocks into his own way. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. 
Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.